The great Harlem Renaissance poet Langston Hughes wrote, I dream of a world where love will bless the earth and peace its paths adorn, where all will know sweet freedom's way, where greed no longer saps the soul nor avarice blights our day, where black or white, whatever race you be, will share the bounties of the earth where everyone is free, where wretchedness will hang its head and joy like a pearl attends the needs of all humanity. Of such I dream my world. What is your dream for the world? Today many people would say that their dream for the world is healing. Physical healing, emotional healing, familial healing, relational healing, social healing, racial healing, ecological healing, spiritual healing, moral healing, political healing, or in the words of Marvin Gaye, some might even say their dream is for sexual healing. It's really stunning to consider all the different ways our lives and our world are wounded, broken, and in need of healing today. Yet even more remarkable, I believe, is the fact that something like healing exists, that healing is real, that healing happens, that it's possible. But what is healing? From the very beginning, the early church described Jesus with the words of Malachi, as the son of justice who will rise with healing in his wings. Our Galilean prophet was a first century healer who many mystics and theologians would later call the great physician. The gospels are filled with stories of Jesus healing the sick and yet amazingly, in all the stories, Jesus never asked anyone to show them their insurance card or to provide a copay before he healed them. He never denied anyone care because of a pre-existing condition or charged extra because they were out of network. It's pretty obvious when you look at it that Jesus' approach to healing was wildly different from our own. Given all the bureaucracy and disparity in our healthcare system right now, it would be easy for us to romanticize the first century or the healing ministry of Jesus. However, it's important to remember that in Jesus' day, sickness was commonly understood to be caused by sin, which is why Jesus' act of healing in the Gospels are often associated and accompanied with forgiveness. There were no clinics, hospitals, or urgent care facilities in Judea, and it wouldn't have mattered if there were, to be honest, because you couldn't be truly healed simply by seeing a physician. You had to get forgiveness, too. So the sick were required to make an offering of atonement for their sins in order to be made well. A few weeks ago in a sermon I joked that the chief priests and Pharisees were not only the religious establishment of the day, but also the criminal justice system, the Department of Agriculture, and the Food and Drug Administration as well. But their power didn't end there. They were also in charge of health care. Only officially sanctioned religious leaders could forgive people's sins and provide them a true healing. A healthcare system 
like that at that time had devastating consequences for the average person. Scholar Richard Horsley tells us that the system was used to keep order over the masses of ordinary people, especially the sick. Such an understanding of sickness and sin together was domesticating because it caused people to blame themselves for their problems while at the same time simultaneously accepting the necessity of an institutionalized system of atonement in which God's forgiveness of sin and the healing of sickness was conditional and channeled solely through official mediators and regulators and only available to those with the means to pay. So, when Jesus went around healing people and forgiving their sins without charging anyone, without official authority from the religious establishment, he was challenging a system that was exploiting people by providing physical, social, and spiritual healing outside the boundaries of the political health care system of the first century and hurting, to be honest, the bottom line of the chief priests and the Pharisees. No wonder they were mad. Instead of letting people blame themselves for their own suffering, Jesus healed the sick physically and spiritually so that they could be reintegrated into society and resume a life with their families and their community. That is what healing was for Jesus. Healing the sick and forgiving sins was nothing less than a revolutionary countercultural act of liberation and inclusion in defiance of the established religious order of the day. Most of the sick people who came to Jesus for healing had been marginalized by society and were too poor to pay to atone for their sins. Yet in Mark 5, we have a story of a wealthy man of power and prestige who came to Jesus on behalf of his 12-year-old daughter. Jairus, leader of his household and the leader of the synagogue. And he went to Jesus. The reason would not have been for him to subvert the Pharisaic system, but because his daughter's situation was so dire, he didn't have time to go through the proper channels and follow the traditional process. He had to get healing quickly. And so Mark tells us Jairus fell at Jesus' feet and begged him Repeatedly, my daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so she may live. Jairus' impassioned pleas for his daughter's life are a powerful reminder to us that death waits for no one. Regardless of status or wealth, pain, death, grief are inescapable aspects of human existence. No matter how powerful or prestigious we may be, we will all suffer. As Dr. King once said, death is the irreducible common denominator of all people. In response to Jairus' pleas for his daughter's life, Jesus made no comments, asked no questions. He simply headed on the way toward Jairus' house. But Mark here is not telling an ordinary tale of healing. Mark is engaged in a sophisticated form of storytelling that literary scholars call an intercalation or a sandwich construction, if you don't like the word intercalation. A sandwich, which is the act of telling a story within a story in order to provoke the reader to consider how the two stories might be connected 
and how the characters might be connected in order to communicate a larger message that transcends both stories on their own. This intercalation begins with a radical interruption that occurs on the way to Jairus' house. Suddenly, on the way, Mark starts telling a new story about a sick woman in the crowd. And unlike Jairus, who approached Jesus from the front as a man of great privilege, the woman came up to Jesus from behind, stealthily, because she was on the completely opposite end of the social ladder from Jairus, the opposite end of the healthcare continuum, one of our ministers told me, and hoping to go unnoticed as she reached out to Jesus' cloak in desperation for healing. We learn an incredible amount of information about this woman in just two sentences. She'd been suffering with hemorrhages, bleeding for 12 years. We don't know why, but we're told she suffered under the care of many physicians who exploited all her resources until everything she had was gone. Yet tragically, she did not approve or get better, but grew worse instead. Now she was sicker than ever. Yet she had no more money to make an offering at the synagogue for forgiveness or to hire any more physicians to find healing for the sins that supposedly caused her illness. This woman was in a serious situation, had a serious medical condition, and she'd been oppressed by the medical establishment, excluded from the religious system, marginalized from her family and society, rendered invisible to the world around her. And yet even though she lost everything and seemed to have nothing, she still had hope. She still had chutzpah. Her audacity is amazing. Her approach, her actions, her touch, her faith literally stopped Jesus in his tracks. And when Jesus stopped and turned and asked, who touched me? Out of nowhere, this sick, poor, oppressed, and invisible woman suddenly became the center of attention and the center of the story, and for at least one moment, she was the center of the world. I've heard people say that all suffering is the same, and that every person's pain feels to them as if it is as deep and overwhelming as any suffering in the world. But I've also heard in the people say things like, I've got first world problems. Well, which one is it? Is all suffering the same? Or are there different kinds of suffering? Was Jairus suffering the same as the woman who touched Jesus? Was his daughter's suffering the same? Recently, my perspective on suffering has expanded as I discovered the work of pastoral care expert Bruce Rogers Vaughn from Vanderbilt, who identifies for us three different kinds of suffering. First order, second order, and third order suffering, he calls it. First order of suffering is simply a part of the human condition. Sickness, death, loss, grief, physical pain, separation, illness, disability, what we all will encounter in our lives. Second order suffering is the suffering that comes as a result of human evil, murder, Abuse, violence, theft, fraud, 
exploitation, deception, as well as systemic evils like discrimination, oppression, war, racism, patriarchy, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, etc., on and on and on, all the isms. But Vaughn believes that third-order suffering, a new kind of suffering, you might say, particular to our moment, is the most prominent form of human distress in this neoliberal age. Third order suffering, he says, is a result of radical individualism, extreme isolation, addiction to technology, the loss of vibrant communities and support systems, eroding faith in institution, the elimination of all social networks and social safety nets. Vaughn describes third order suffering as a state of spiritual homelessness where unfortunate souls feel abandoned in our society and left to interpret their sufferings alone as signs of personal failure. They are not actually guilty though, but they are ashamed and lack the resources to understand or make sense of their sufferings and therefore the sufferings compound upon them. Instead, they're left with market-generated narratives of personal recovery, which are perpetually fragile in the face of what we are truly up against. The sources of sufferings are no longer easily identified in this time. Oppressors no longer have faces. The options are either to look within, blame their sufferings on themselves, or stare into the fog. Most people take the first option and blame themselves for their sufferings. Those who take the second option often strike out into the fog with violence as a reaction, which explains the unprecedented rise in mass shootings over the last 20 years. Vaughn then proclaims rather provocatively at the end of his book that the church must completely reorient its pastoral care in order to address third order suffering. The woman who touched Jesus experienced first-order suffering, hemorrhaging that had lasted for 12 years. She also experienced second-order suffering, being bankrupted by physicians who exploited her without healing and excluded her from society and the synagogue, and lacking all resources, cut off from community. She could have easily turned inward and blamed herself for her sickness, succumbed to the first-century version of third-order suffering, believing her sickness was her fault, that there was something wrong with her, that she was being punished for her sins. But she didn't. She refused to blame herself. She refused to remain isolated and alone. She went out with the crowd to find this Jesus that she'd heard about. Now, because of the purity codes, we should remember it would have been wildly inappropriate for a bleeding woman to be out in public, let alone to be grabbing a holy man's clothes. People in that day would have expected Jesus to contract her disease, but instead she contracted his power and was healed. And then, did you notice? Jesus called her daughter, my daughter, made her part of the family, named her a child of God and a child of the synagogue. And then he proclaimed that her audacity and her hope her chutzpah, her approach, her touch were the very definition of faith. 
But that's not the end of the story, is it? What about the first daughter? The privileged daughter, the daughter of Jairus, the one that Jesus was on the way to heal. What happened to her? She died. She died while Jesus was caring for a poor sick woman. And every time I read this story, I expect Jairus to lose his mind and blow up at Jesus. Maybe that's what I would do, I don't know. As the leader of a modern-day synagogue with an almost 12-year-old daughter, I'd be pissed. Wouldn't you expect this powerful man to explode with anger when he learned that this poor, sick woman's interruption had cost him the chance for Jesus to save his daughter's life? Why was he not infuriated? by the fact that Jesus' prioritization of this poor, sick woman interrupted his daughter's chance for healing. Isn't a 12-year-old's life more important than an old sick woman who's been bleeding for 12 years? Isn't a 12-year-old girl's chance to grow up, to become a bat mitzvah, a daughter of the Torah, to grow up and get married and have children and make a family more important than an old, poor, sick woman? The answer from Jesus is quite clear. It's a resounding no. And somehow, big, powerful, privileged Jairus understood, or at least knew enough to keep his mouth shut. The answer this story provides us is that both daughters matter and both get healed because there's enough healing for everyone, for rich and poor, for the first and second order suffering, for those at the center and the margins, for all people, regardless of how much power they have. But, and this is the key, Jesus says, there's only enough healing to go around if the poor come first. If we interrupt our lives to take care of the poor. We live in a world that desperately wants us to believe that the myth of scarcity is a fact of human existence. That there is a lack of resources in our world and not enough for everyone, so someone is going to have to go without. Our economic system is built to make us think that there is not enough time, not enough resources, not enough power, not enough healing for everyone. But this is a bold-faced lie, and we must reject it as followers of Jesus every morning, every evening, and every hour in between. There's not just enough to go around, there's more than enough to go around for everyone. There's an abundance. It's just that there's not enough for everyone's greed. There is enough for everyone's need. History has shown us, though, time and time again, that there will never be enough for everyone if we start with the rich and hope that there will be enough left for the poor. Or worse, expect it to magically trickle down. However, Jesus says there will always be more than enough time and power and healing to go around if we prioritize the poor, first and foremost. A preferential option, many have called it in Scripture. Economic inequality is greater in America today than ever before in history. The gap between the haves and the have-nots grows wider with every recession, pandemic, and crisis. But the good news in this story that Jesus is trying to get us to see. The good news here is of a different strategy. 
a new strategy for economic equality. It's the good news of a poor woman's audacity, the good news of a rich man's silence, the good news of two daughters who get healed in the same story, the good news of a simple and yet profound truth. We are all in this life together, bound up with one another, interdependent, rich and poor, and everyone in between. We're all living in the same story. Our sufferings may be different, but our lives are bound up together. Like Jairus and his daughter, Jesus and the woman who touched him, our lives and our stories are intercalated, entangled, enmeshed, and intertwined. Rich, poor, middle, and working class, our healing and our salvation are tied up with each other. As Dr. King famously said, we are caught up in an inescapable web of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. So Jairus and his daughter didn't just need to see Jesus to find healing. That's not all they needed. They also needed the poor sick woman and her healing as well. Jairus needed to see the poor woman's healing first and welcome her back into the synagogue that he was the leader of as a daughter as equal to his own before he could experience his own daughter's healing. We can't create communities where no one suffers, but we can create communities where no one suffers alone or unnecessarily. We can build a church and a world where there is more than enough to go around for everyone, but only if we put the poor first. Yes, it means if we are rich and powerful and privileged and prestigious like Jairus, we may have to stand back and patiently wait our turn in silence. I know that sounds hard. But the last shall be first and the first shall be last was not some pie-in-the-sky vision of what the kingdom will look like in the future. No, it's the rule of life for the followers of Jesus, the blueprint for beloved community, the construction manual for the church, the instructions Jesus gave us for how to prioritize suffering, to triage the world, to find healing right now in the present at this point in history if we want the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. The good news is that if we put the last first and the first last, there will always be enough for everyone and joy will abound for all. Like Langston Hughes, I dream of a world where love will bless the earth and peace its paths adorn, where all will know sweet freedom's way, where greed no longer saps the soul nor avarice blights our day, where black or white, whatever race you be, will share the bounties of the earth where everyone is free. I dream of a world where there is more than enough money and time and power and resources and healing to go around. I dream of a world where no one is marginalized or rejected from the synagogue, the church, or society. I dream of a world where everyone gets healing, no matter how much power or wealth or status they have. I dream of a world where people no longer believe sickness is caused by sin, where people no longer blame themselves for their own sufferings. I dream of a world where men like Jairus share their resources with women like the one who touched Jesus. 
I dream of a world where there is no economic divide between rich daughters and poor daughters. I dream of a world where we all understand we are living in the exact same story, on the exact same earth. I dream of a world where we live like our salvation is bound up with our poor neighbor's salvation. I dream of a world where we know that addressing our neighbor's suffering is the key to our own healing. I dream of a world where we always, always, always put the poor first. A world where every person not only finds healing, but finds life and finds it abundantly. How about you? What is your dream for the world? Amen.